Hi, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism, and I want to tell you about a new space I have out in Pasadena, California called Gallery 30 South. Um, it's a contemporary art gallery that also features an atelier space where um, handcrafted materials are made in addition to servicing the fine arts of the Northeast Los Angeles region. Uh, most of the focus is going to be kind of bridging that gap between figurative work and abstract and uh, sort of our mission is to get people into the types of artwork that they may not think that they already like. So again, Gallery 30 South, and that's gallery30south.com and at gallery30south on all social media. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, Pod Sequentialism is, of course, recorded at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles and is brought to you by not only Meltdown Comics and the Meltdown Podcasting Network, but La Luz de Jesus Gallery and Wacko Soap Plant Superstore, and of course, my new endeavor, Gallery 30 South out in Pasadena. So come on by, stop by any of those locations and tell them Matt sent you. Now, my guest today is somebody I've known, I think at this point, over 21 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. When did you Could come be. out? When did you come out first? Uh, at the end of '97. See, now everybody thinks that you came out of the closet, but you just actually came out <laughs> to California from uh, from Colorado at the at the time, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, my guess is the Bashar and um, Bahar. Bahar. I always pronounce the C. God damn. I you. suck. So, um, Dian Bahar um, is known to fans of the South Park community as being one of the stars of Cannibal the Musical. Also, basketball and orgasmo, and we're going to talk about orgasmo quite a bit later, and probably all of these things actually. <laughs> and um, and Dean was also, um, I remember you were you were teaching some acting classes, and we're going to talk about the how hard it is kind of to get tenure and how getting a job in an institution can hinge on what your career includes. So, um, without further ado, I welcome Dean Bahar. Hello. <laughs> Ooh, hey, hi. If, if Mason wasn't here, this could be the podcast of people who are under five foot six. But um, Mason's blowing <laughs> our numbers for us again. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so the way that we met is kind of interesting in that um, I had known for a little while, just a little while actually, um, a couple of girls named uh, Shauna Betts mm-hmm. and Heather Waters. Mm-hmm. And they were roommates. And my friend Whitman and I met them one night and just started talking shop and they just they were fascinated with um and they had the kind of professional language of working around movies and working around entertainment and so um we became really good friends and i spent a lot of time with them and i think that shauna knew marcus and marcus was living down at the beach in the same place that Glasgow Phillips was living and that um trey and matt were living at one point but i don't think they were there anymore no. No? <laughs> no? No, I don't think Marcus ever lived there. I lived there, though. That's right. You lived there. And Glasgow lived there for a bit. Yeah, and uh, Jason McHugh. Jason McHugh, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, if anybody wants to um, you know, get their library card out and go and check out the Royal Nunsuch, there <laughs> is a sort of deep background explanation about a lot of the things that we're going to discuss from one person's point of view and one person's perspective about how things... Um, kind of grew out of all these people that kind of knew each other hanging out and getting things done. Yeah. And so I was also working at Troma at the time. Oh, okay. So I was doing a lot of guerrilla marketing for um, not really as much for Lloyd as I was for the West Coast um, VP, a guy named David Schultz. And so we had just, he approached me, I was working on this pilot, which was going to be this Reader's Digest version of Troma Films. And um, we got pretty far down the runway on that. And then at the last minute, I was replaced with a different actor, and it kind of fell to pieces. But um, the show got me into close proximity with the Troma guys. And that not happening was kind of great because I, I stayed working with David. And we got Tromeo and Juliet from a midnight movie into regular slots. And that was the first time that Troma had had a film in regular circulation in theaters in, I think, almost 10 years at that point. Yeah. And so that's James Gunn wrote that. And so mm-hmm. this this community grows and grows from trauma. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And Cannibal was just being optioned. Like I think it had just been purchased and they had uh, Lloyd had seen it and, and bought the film, I think, from Jason. 
and um, and then I realized that all these people that I knew from other people were involved in all of these same projects, and now I'm I'm just I'm gesticulating with my hands in a way that nobody can see, but I look like a crazy person. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and so, um, as a result of that, I remember you guys had started shooting. Like, obviously, South Park started to become a thing. And so a lot of the people that Matt and Trey had known and worked with before were also in Los Angeles. Some people were working on South Park and some people were working on their other projects like basketball. Mm -hmm. So um, how did that kind of come about? How did you get to know those guys? And how has that kind of been the groundwork for what's been happening? How did I get to know which guys? Trey and Matt. Yeah. Uh, We went to school together. Mm -hmm. We went to uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder. Mm Mm-hmm. And we were all film majors and got degrees in film production. So we worked on a, a very, needless to say, ridiculously low-budget student films. Yes. You know, everybody's kind of scraping together and pulling their friends and uh, crew members, basically, to uh, to act in the movies. And that's mm-hmm. actually how I, I switched gears. I started off as a journalism major there, and then I got pa- uh, paired up with Trey. Mm-hmm in an acting class and my parents weren't going to let me go to school to study acting they thought it was uh not a respectable uh, thing to do not necessarily respectable but not necessarily um a strong major they didn't see that as being something that would ensure a job sure which is absolutely true yeah yeah we can all attest to that yeah but the thing is they uh you know they they loved the fact that i was involved in writing and so i i Basically, to make them happy, I was a journalism major because I love to write. Mm-hmm. But after talking to Trey, I realized that, or found out actually, that all of the film majors basically cast other film majors in their movies. Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe that that would be a sneaky way for me to kind of enter the back door into actually learning how to act without mm-hmm. my parents knowing that that was the incentive. So I switched majors and became a film major. But in in retrospect, I think that it's actually... A pretty smart idea for any actor to have a basic knowledge of filmmaking in general because a lot of actors think that that the movie's all about them or the film or the TV or any kind of project whatsoever that they're involved in and they don't necessarily understand that there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that go into making that whole thing happen yep and so thankfully I uh, I learned about all those puzzle pieces I uh, I got to try all those puzzle pieces I got to basically try every crew member position available and make my own student films. And I got to see how actually difficult it is to make something. How yep. Just to bring an idea to a screen is a long, very difficult process with a lot of people involved. So I was, I was fortunate in that respect to, uh, to understand that it's not all about me, not yeah. even close. It's, so. it's funny you talk about that, about you know learning your way around the set in a way by taking those jobs. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I had, I had had my SAG card for a while, I think, at this point. And I think it was Heather was taking a class, and it was a, a bass tech class. Mm-hmm. So like for bass players. And I, I was like, I didn't, I didn't know you played bass. She's like, oh, I don't, but this is like a free sound seminar. And I was like mind blown like of course that's like how come i don't do this stuff like how come i don't go and take advantage of all these other things because ostensibly if when i was younger and i was an actor like most actors i wanted to probably be a director Mm -hmm. and and so i remember um like it it would help me if i knew the language of the other professionals around me on set and so as an actor and i was doing tons of commercials i would pester the hell out of the dp until i think they wanted they would have security block me (laughs) <laughs> from talking to them, except when I was on set, you know, like I'd ask them all kinds of questions. Yeah. And I um, actually worked with um, Darius Kanji on a commercial. Okay. And I was like on him about stuff and he clearly just did not want to talk to the talent. Right. And I, and I think he actually overexposed the on uh, the film so that it couldn't be used so um oh. I've, I've there's like i have a, a much smaller role in this commercial that i was ostensibly the star of and then they ended up shooting it again with somebody else because the um it didn't come out and i think he did it on purpose but um oh, i hope I, not I, I hope i'm not uh fostering a lawsuit here but um <laughs> but i started doing that that type of stuff and like just yeah. like realizing okay I've, I've got some friends who are making a movie i'll go grip from this weekend mm-hmm. you know and realized Oh my God! The upper body strength that it takes to hold the boom mic in place oh, yeah. for take after take—that's probably take. one of the hardest jobs physically. Yeah. yeah, and then you know, like running sound and 
everything makes a noise and everything needs to be cleaned up and yeah. you know having that portable kit like the like the cigarette girl at a 1940s club is like this this harness that's on your on the front of you with all these sound dials that you're you're twisting yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and not knowing much about it and then just being like if it sounds okay let us know if it doesn't sound okay let us know and you're kind of right. like after every take like <laughs> You know, your hand starts to go up like, um, excuse me, I think there's a <laughs> I think there's a gonk in the background, you know? Yeah. But I think as a result of those girls hanging out with you guys mm-hmm. that everybody was doing all of these things. And I had been in Hollywood at that point for probably four years and I mean I didn't move here to be an actor and it kind of fell in my lap. But mm-hmm. um it was really eye-opening and Mm -hmm. and something that you had to respect but I had read some of your writing too I think before I'd even um, no it was after I met you but I I read a jockey script that you had worked on like around the time of basketball that was really really good and it was like a laugh like every page had like a really a really good laugh but there was also kind of a sweetness to it I unfortunately did not write that script Glasgow wrote that script entirely on his own but he wrote it Mm -hmm. um with the intent to me for me to star in it. Oh, okay. Uh, unfortunately, that never, never came, came to, to fruition. fruition yeah. No. And I don't know how hard he pursued it because I think it's a great script. Yeah. I think he should try to pursue it further because it was actually, I mean, although you mentioned that there are some laughs, it's a pretty heavy drama. Yeah. About a, this alcoholic jockey who's got this stripper girlfriend and he's just It kind of shakes the clown, but it's like, yeah. I mean, it could be leaving Las Vegas, yeah. but I think it's better if it shakes the clown because, yeah. I mean, jockeys... That's a good analogy, actually, yeah. It's a little bit of that mixed with shakes the clown. Yeah, yeah. and it was really, really well done. Yeah. And, um, and so when you're working with these other guys and now, and you've got friends that you've known from college and now all of a sudden they start to become really famous. Yeah. And so what happens? What happens to what? Like the friendships and like, you know, the different projects. I mean, at a certain point, there's probably plans to do four or five or six or different things. And then it's like the studio is like, well, we want you to make this one and this is the budget you're going to get and you get to go from there. But I mean, you you did like immediately, pretty pretty quickly after getting here, start working on a couple of projects that were projects those guys just wanted to get made. Some independently and some of the studio. Uh, well, they actually they did Orgasmo mm-hmm. um, before I moved out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I did Cannibal the Musical while I was in college. Mm-hmm. That was actually uh, Trey's senior thesis film. Mm-hmm. And I think the budget came about because of uh, a few of the professors, and I think a few of the students had some wealthy parents, mm-hmm. and they were able to kick in some cash and make that happen. Mm-hmm. But then they found, uh, they graduated like a year or two before I did from CU, and they, they came out to L.A. and found money through... Uh, a Japanese porn company, a, a toy, sex toy company, basically. Right. They funded it. And, um, yeah, so it was a low-budget film. They brought me out there to film. And uh, uh, that was kind of like my jump start into L.A. I was still living in Colorado. And after the filming was done, I had a little bit of, little bit of cash from that movie. And mm-hmm. then I decided to use that to basically load all my stuff in a U-Haul. And I moved out to L.A. and... Uh, Slept on their couch for a few months. Actually, no, I was probably there for at least six months. Yeah, and then they started making money from uh, from South Park. So they uh, they moved out of that apartment. Trey and Matt did. Mm-hmm. Jason stayed there, and then he brought one of his best friends from high school, Glasgow, and he moved in. And I took Matt's old bedroom, mm-hmm. and then I stayed there for like another two years. But Trey and Matt made some incredible money from from the get go from South Park, and, and not uh, from not from Comedy Central, which was an, which was a good deal. But their product license yeah, they was like, they got like a, a seven million, I remember they each got like seven million dollar checks and they were just kind of like, whoa, like. Yeah, can- I'm, not, I'm not sure what they made from it exactly, but it was enough to make them uh, move out of the apartment. Yeah. And they found another apartment that was literally a block away down the beach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and, and then I did some voices on South Park, but. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do any more, actually, because it's a non-union show. I'm actually a member, like yourself, yeah. of the Screen Actors Guild. And I actually got a cease and desist letter from the Screen Actors Guild, like everybody did, yeah. actually, saying that you can't do any more episodes of South Park. Yeah. So, and that was right before the union went on strike, so that was kind of a bogus Yeah, like, so I quit. Thing. You know, I had to not do any more voices on South Park, which sucked, because it, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was yeah. a cool gig. I remember... Um, getting offered a lot of non-union stuff. And I did a few things by getting around them, 
Mm-hmm. Number one, if you don't use the same name you use in the guild, you can you can do it. Yeah. And then just come, well, what's the point if they know me for this thing? Yeah. But the other thing is that if you're a producer, you can work on non-union work. Yeah, there is a loophole there because yeah. it's if, if it's considered to be your own product, then you have some creative license there of being involved. Yeah, and so you you know it costs nobody to make you an associate. Yeah, <laughs> it's like associate right. producer or something. Yeah. So there was there was a couple of, of low budget projects early on that I was able to do, and and not that much came of them, but that it allowed to be able to do that. And I think a lot of times, and especially like I was mainly doing commercials, like mm-hmm. I didn't get a lot of opportunity to read on theatrical stuff, and when I did, it was. There were a couple projects that went on for a very long time, and then when they finally came about, and I was at a point where I was getting kind of well known as a commercial actor, um, that you know I, I'd book something else and, and couldn't do the project. Yeah. And I did I think three projects for Viacom, which meant you, you know long hours, no pay, no callbacks, they didn't pay you the whole nine yards. Right. And you know you work on something for a year and a half, and it comes to nothing, and you've got nothing to show for it, and it's just yeah. like oh. Yeah. But, um, you know, that if you can get in independent projects, it keeps your chops up. And, yeah. I mean, anybody yeah. who's seen Orgasmo, I mean, you are like the ultimate scene stealer in that film because every time you're on screen, everybody's attention is on you because it's whether it's the costume and the way you, that you're, you're wearing it <laughs> and just like the situations that you have great comic timing. And so, Thanks. you know. Years later, when you were teaching um, acting class, I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense because it's, you know, you need somebody that's got great comic timing to be teaching people, you know, the instincts and to go with their instincts. But, um, you know, then after Orgasmo comes basketball, and that's that's a studio film. I'm sorry to correct you, but Is I basketball actually, first. No, you know, I was just thinking though, I I never actually got to teach. You didn't get to teach? No, no, you're. Um... I actually was up for a couple teaching jobs, and because of Orgasmo, mm-hmm. I did not get hired. And that was fifteen years, twenty years, fifteen years later. Yeah, I mean that was just like a couple years ago. And it's not like it was a porn movie. This is like a beloved American comedy. Yeah, I mean, there's no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a beloved American comedy. It's uh, <laughs> for my audience. It's yeah, like you know American graffiti. You know, it's crazy because there's no nudity in the movie. There's right. no real violence. It's all cartoony. Yep. And. Uh, you know, the same year um, that that came out, there's something about Mary came out, and you mm-hmm. see a guy jacking off in the bathroom. Yep. You see a guy getting his nuts caught in his zipper. Yep. The the bean the, the Franks and the Frank and the beans. Yeah. You see yes, you see it's... cum in a girl's hair. Yep. It's like, dude, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, orgasmo didn't even come close to going there. It's the title. But you gave that. Yeah. Uh, it it made no sense. So, it's the title, I guess, is that you know a lot of these. I don't know what it was. It made no sense. It was local colleges, right? A couple of local colleges that um that were that you were going to be teaching at, or what were the applications? No, no, it was actually for the uh, the Star School Education. It's wow. like an actually a, a big uh, accredited school program, and mm. they um they were afraid that some parents might. Google their teacher, which they probably would. I, yeah. I, if I had a kid in class, you know, I'd I'd want to know who his teacher was. Yeah. And their concern was that some, t- uh, you know, some kids' parents might say, "Well, what what has this guy done? What movies has he been involved in?" And see the title, "Orgasmo" and my porn gear, and be like, "There's no way he's coming close to my kid." Which is kind of it's which is it's crazy. ridiculous. But it I is. mean, also, I mean. Look, you end up also doing, you have a, um, um, how many days did you work on Galaxy Quest? Uh, two weeks. So it's two weeks on Galaxy Quest. So you have as much screen time as Jim Parsons has in Galaxy Quest and 10 times as many impressive credits at that point in time. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's funny, and I, I do actually kind of understand where they're coming from because ultimately what they've got going on could be shut down if enough parents said they didn't want that program being taught in their school. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fortunate that certain schools bring them in mm-hmm. to have an extracurricular program. And so if there's anything that might keep them away from those profits, mm-hmm. they're going to get rid of it, which was me, because I was a liability to them, you know. To, and to I understand, you know. The curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, that's, you know, unfortunately how it is. So, essentially, if I want to teach acting, it needs to probably not be for kids. Right. Because there's probably going to be parents who go, 
wait a minute, I don't know what that movie's about. Yeah. And that's exactly true. They don't know what that movie's about. Right, right. They don't know that it's actually a harmless comedy. Yeah. They don't know that I could actually probably teach their kids fairly well. Yeah. They don't care. So, yeah, I got kind of nipped in the bud there. Damn. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to follow up on on some amazing uh, in-the-business stories with uh, Dean Bahar, and um, we're going to do a little business, so we'll see you in about 60 seconds. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me today Dean Bahar, um, and we're going to give the, the geek bona fides once again, as Kevin Smith would call them, um, talking about orgasmo, basketball, um, Galaxy Quest, and um, so... At this point, as as I would imagine, it's like your stock is on the rise, and you're probably getting sent out on a lot of different types of stuff. And like every actor, you probably end up booking gigs that maybe don't necessarily go anyplace, and some some gigs do. What was it like after that point in time? Like, well, actually, let's talk about basketball, because that was that's the film that was like a a big studio film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of like the, the grand step out for the South Park guys after landing, after becoming famous as the South Park guys. And they've got that same crew of people that they've been working with. And you're in this, you're like the number two lead, basically, in the, uh, the two and a half lead, we'll say, because we'll call Matt and Trey the one, you know, like <laughs> Matt plus Trey equals one. And you're, yeah. you're, you're the next guy down on the, on the credit list. Yeah. And so this happens and it's... It's again. It's it's a, f- a film that gained a huge cult movie status over time. At the time, it was not necessarily well received, mm-hmm. but people who liked it loved it. And I mean, I mean that the party, the beach party, had like Limp Biscuit was playing like the beach party. I think that year, or something crazy, the Cowboys and Spaceman party that was kind of the basketball rap party. Uh-huh. And it's sort of like it happens at that weird nexus in time. It's like you say, you know, it's like Orgasmo is a film that comes out, and it's it's got no bad content but um if you don't know you may get an idea about it and then you've got the Ferrelli brothers making their rise at that same time and it's interesting that you know the Ferrelli brothers are, aren't quite the Ferrelli brothers anymore you know like their films they don't get as many films made um the formula kind of reached a certain point where it started to peter off and as an actor and as somebody who is is mainly known at that point at least um for comedic roles what what happens when you know after um, a situation like that, like after basketball, where there's like a lot of money goes in and it's going to be everybody's kind of big chance to to, to toe up, and then it, it doesn't do well. Like, what's the next step after that? The next step would be making a hit movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, which ba- you kind of did. I mean, because you you know I I, I like Galaxy Quest better than Star Trek. Like yeah. to me, it is a better film than any of the Star Trek films. Yeah, and and I don't hate them. I do like the Star Trek films. I just think it's a really, really great movie. And when you go beyond that, the lead cast, and you start looking at all the people who have every other role in the film, it's like you guys are all people known for other things. Like yeah. there's there's no random person in that cast. I guess Jim Parsons would be the only guy who would have qualified at that point in time as being somebody who wasn't really fam- you know, wasn't well known and cast because he had kind of a a geek credential at the time. Yeah, uh, basketball was uh it was a funny movie. I mean, I loved working on it. It was a great time, but mm-hmm. like you said it was not a hit. It bombed. I mean, it bombed opening yeah. weekend. The opening weekend I think was like 7 million dollars. Yeah. And it was literally up against There's Something About Mary. Oh, my God. Which was making, like, I think it had, like, $45 million that yeah. weekend. So Hand it's a fist. huge, huge difference. So, yeah, thankfully, um, because of cable and DVD and so forth, uh, there's still an audience for basketball. But when it initially came out, it uh, it tanked. I mean, yeah. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hit. So Hollywood is a business, you know. Yeah. So you're only going to get noticed if a movie that you're in made a shit pot of money. Yeah. That's just kind of how the studio system is. You know, they work with numbers, and and I understand that. You know, it doesn't matter how good that actual product might be yeah. in your in your viewpoint. It's but not it's, the steak, it's the sizzle. Yeah, you know, it's it's like people follow Twitter and Instagram now, and, they, and they're told who they should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny because it seems like, 
nowadays talent has kind of gone out the door. You got people like the Kardashians who are in the public eye, and I'm not really sure why, because yeah. they don't actually offer anything. Yeah. But we're repeatedly told to pay attention to them. Yeah. And the thing is, they have such a huge Twitter and Instagram following and so forth that they could probably all get movie deals. Yeah. Like every one of them could yeah. probably get a movie made only because of that random bullshit. A high but it budget. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. A high budget movie made, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter that they don't have talent or actually bring anything to the table other than an audience, mm. which if you look at a business model makes sense to a business guy because he's like, well... I'm not going to invest in something that I know I can't get my money back on. Mm -hmm. These Kardashians have an audience. Everybody who follows them on some random social media item will say, hey, I'll, I'll dolly up some money to go see that shit. Yeah. And they will. Yeah. And they'll make money. And that's just how it is. Although, <laughs> yeah. here's where I get to correct you. So um, at the height of Paris Hilton celebrity, mm -hmm. I was at Liberation Entertainment. And we were partnered with Here Networks. Yeah. And they called us into a meeting, all the directors, and we had to go to a screening over at, at CAA, which was, um, and it was kind of mind-blowing because they bring us into a, um, a conference room, not a screening room, to watch a full-length movie. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, it's like the long table, we're all sitting around the table, and it was the movie The Hottie and the Naughty. And it was David Allen Moore, I think, produced and wrote and starred in it, and Paris Hilton was the um, the lead. And it was supposed to be that kind of something about Mary type movie. And this is like 2000, 2007 or 2008. Mm -hmm. And it's awful. It is horrible. And all of us as marketing directors are just kind of like looking across the table, kind of shaking our heads, you know, without trying to rouse too much attention from all these other executives, hoping to walk out of the room and be like to our boss, we're not buying this piece of shit, are we? Yeah. And as we walked out, we're about to say something. Uh, the owner of the company basically said, I don't care what you guys have to say about it, we're doing this. <laughs> like, he, as if he knew it was a bad movie. Right. And then, um, you know, when it opened, it had the worst numbers of any ma film in major release in history. It had like a, I think it was less than one, one viewer per screening room that mm -hmm. was playing it. And of course, the following week, it went down to like, however the wide release was to, to basically almost nothing and by two weeks it was gone everywhere yeah and so we got called back into the meeting and um the president of the company a guy named jay boberg he was like well i guess we really kissed the pig on this one <laughs> and we were kind of like yeah we watched it we know yeah. and it was because she was famous but she was not famous for anything of substance and she had a hit tv show and their thing was like oh you know because we get paris hilton we'll get all this press and it's like well she'll get press but she's not going to get press for this movie she's going to get press for the the brand that is paris hilton mm -hmm. and we kind of knew this going in and, and like anytime you had to book her any place you'd have to pay the hairstylist and all this other jazz yeah so i mean there has to be even in those situations, while they can get one or two movies made, maybe, yeah. that the public is going to decide whether or not it's valid. And I think one thing that maybe the Kardashians were wise about is that they don't have any ostensible talents. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like Kim is out there wanting to read for Evita, right. you know, or Chloe or any of the, um, you know, the, the other sisters. And that being seen and not heard except via tweet um, or via is, porn, yeah, is is doing them quite well, right? And so don't they're not rocking that particular uh, boat, right? So um, I think that at a certain point, that even people and and of course there's tons of examples of people who've made incredible movies and, and just like suffered like their entire lives and John Cassavetes not being the least of which Orson Welles probably being the most famous mm -hmm. that um, but eventually people do come come around and I think. The great thing about social media now is that it is easier to be an underdog success story. Mm -hmm. That it they may not catch it immediately, but now the the lag behind is pretty quick. Okay. And so that um I think that it is now a little bit easier to be able to build on something. It's just about now you have to build three times as fast. It's like if you do get that feedback from something that wasn't immediately successful, mm -hmm. you have to like be ready to strike with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that means, of course, that almost all product is a little bit medio more mediocre than it perhaps would be mm -hmm. because you don't have the amount of time to finesse things. Okay. Do you think that that's been your experience at all? No, because I haven't. I have not been very proactive in terms of pushing new product. Mm -hmm. um, I came out here thinking that 
talent was important. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I actually needed to do more self-marketing. Yeah, running around knocking on doors. Yeah. yeah. But you've also, in at least in the last few years, been making a lot of shorts and um, getting a lot more material out there and being cast in a lot more stuff and, and in stuff that has potential to, to really kind of catch on in a, in a commercial kind of way. I do short films occasionally, but I mostly do features. I do two to three features every year. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, it's because um, most of the directors, writers, and producers that cast me are fans of stuff that I did previously. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because Facebook, I actually, ironically, in terms of social media, has been a better agent yeah. for me than most of my agents ever have. Yeah. Because it's a direct pipeline for people to uh, immediately connect with me and to send a script and to say, hey... I like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Check out something that I made. We got some money together to make something. Do you want to be involved? Mm -hmm. And that's usually how it goes. And it's been, it's been awesome. That's really nice. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate that some of the movies I did initially didn't make money because it would have been better for everyone. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, those movies hit a chord with certain people Mm -hmm. and they're making movies now on their own. And, Thankfully, they liked what I did, and they want me to be involved in helping tell their story too. Mm-hmm. So it's cool. It's it's uh, it's not all bad. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the the great thing too, and, and we've known each other for a long time. We don't see each other all the time, but we see each other fairly regularly, I guess. You know, it, not a longer gap than a couple of years has been going on in the last ten or so. Mm-hmm. But um, and I mean, you you seem really happy, yeah. and like you know that you've you've got a, and I love that. Like I have other other friends that I know, and they're like, "You'll make a comment or something on my Facebook," and they'd be like, "You know that guy?" I'm like, "Yeah, I know that guy." And yeah. it's like, the, it's funny that you have more currency to a lot of my friends than I don't know Johnny Depp, you know, in yeah. that it's like that you've the those films that the the early films that they know you for, and then they get used to seeing you, and so that when they see you and stuff, they're psyched. Well, you know? the thing is, the thing is, I'm sorry to cut you off, but the sure. thing is about comedy is that it's uh, it's a purely subjective thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can make a movie that's uh, a spectacle film with explosions and action and stuff, and that's probably going to appeal to most everyone's animalistic desires and interests. Mm-hmm. Um, thrill quotient. But in terms of comedy, if somebody actually makes you laugh, it's because it, it touched something personal inside you that that is just true to you. You yeah. know, I'm... I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that some people have laughed at stuff that I did because usually when I approach comedy, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to make myself laugh. Mm-hmm. And if if other people laugh too, then I'm really lucky. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the best way for any comedic actor or just a stand-up comedian as well. If If you go up on stage trying to please everybody you're probably going to fall flat. You're, yeah. you're going to feel forced. It's going to yeah. look forced. But if you go up there presenting something that is true to yourself and something that makes you laugh and other people follow suit, then, then that's an extra bonus. Yeah. You know, that's an extra, uh, positive thing there. But, uh, the thing is I've, I've done some silly roles and stuff that some people, they don't give a shit about other people. They're like, Oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And, you know, I have to listen to both of them. I have to listen to, you know, why wasn't that funny to some guy, but funny to another guy. And I don't need to re-harness what I'm doing to try to make everybody happy. I have to listen to the one that laughed the hardest and go, well, what was it about that that made them happy? And usually it's because I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just being what they thought was realistic to some degree. Yeah. And it struck them as funny. And And that's usually funnier if you're not trying to be funny, if you're actually just trying to present something that seems semi-realistic yeah. that they can attach some uh, interest to, then it strikes them as funnier. And uh, I'm I'm very lucky that uh, basketball was well-received, actually, by people in England. Actually, I got to film a TV pilot uh, just last August out mm-hmm. in England because uh, the writer and the director and producer of that, uh, they're fans of basketball and orgasmo. And the guy... The guy basically explained to me that uh, South Park is a huge hit in England. Yeah. Everybody loves South Park out there. So they're very, 
curious about anything that those guys have done otherwise. Yeah. I mean, and they view it like all in the family, you know, yeah. like as, as the same type of feel about American politics that all in it's, the family had in the 70s. They're like, okay, we can't wait to see what South Park does with this in a couple of weeks yeah, because they, those they Americans it, are crazy. Yeah, they kind of view Trey and Matt as like a new Monty Python in a way. Yeah. And they're curious about everything they're involved in. So I'm very fortunate they, they've seen stuff that I've done. So um, actually one of the, the director that was out there, he told me that he doesn't know anybody in England who hasn't seen basketball. Wow. Which I was surprised by. I was like, Jesus, maybe I need to <laughs> move to England. to England. I need to relocate immediately. <laughs> but because of that, there's an audience out there and there's an uh, a group of people that wanted to help me uh, make something else. So they filmed a really cool half hour Actually, it's probably about 40 minutes. It's probably going to be an hour-long TV pilot. Mm -hmm. So I was flown out there for two weeks and filmed that, and they're in post-production right now. And then they're going to start shopping that around. And, you know, like any TV pilot, you have no idea what's going to yeah. happen. You know, there's so many that are made that don't do anything. But it was an awesome experience. And it just uh, it just helped remind me that uh, I need to keep making stuff that makes me laugh because... I'm pretty sure there will still be an audience for it. Yeah. I just need to keep on track. What's, you know, the the quote that Alan Moore uses in Crimes and Misdemeanors, you know, if if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. That's actually Larry Gelbart that he got that from. So the, okay. the producer of the TV show MASH. Okay. And, um... And one of Larry's other big things was, you know, the comedy plus tragedy... Uh, tragedy plus uh, time equals comedy. Okay. And you've hit on something that often, you know, it's not when you're trying to be funny necessarily as a comedic actor that things work. It's that you catch a second ahead of the audience's emotion. Mm -hmm. Not 10 seconds, you know, but like yeah. one or two seconds ahead so that they're like, you beat them to their own emotion and that makes <laughs> it exponential. Okay. So that they take that, they're like, yeah, like you have validated their intuition about what the situation entails. And so really well edited comedy is capturing great performances and catching the beats close enough on the edit to the reaction on the other shot on the other side of, of the performance that the audience becomes the shot on the other side of the performance. And um, when you look at really, really great comedies, the, the pacing of comedy has changed over the years. You know, you go back and look at some like it hot, you know, and, and there's a lot of long takes, but there's also a lot of interesting camera movement in an era where the camera didn't move necessarily so much and it's mm -hmm. subtle and it's, it's, it's great. And you see that a lot in horror films, you know, Polanski's subtle camera movement and it causes a lot of uh, psychological effects. But, um, you know, like you say, as an actor, a lot of times, you know, it's, you might not be getting necessarily a lot of direction from the director and they're thinking, you know, that they cast you because they, they, they know that you can do what they want. They may not know how to, how to tell you how to do it. And I've had, I've heard, um, Michelle Williams talk about that. She's like, Oh, every time I do a movie, you know, I feel like I'm going to work with that director who's going to tell me what it is that I do right, you know, and it's going right. to be amazing and I'm going to have this epiphany. Yeah. And as she does more and more movies, she realizes that's probably never going to happen, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, it's, it's comedy is a funny thing. It's, uh, pun intended, it's, yeah. uh, it's all about uh, timing. Yep. Like you mentioned, it's all about the beats and the rhythm and the pacing, and it's very musical. Yep. Comedy is a musical structure. And that's the thing that a lot of actors don't understand. Um, there's a lot of dramatic actors that are not able to do comedy mm -hmm. because they don't understand the musical aspect of they it. They could just buy a metronome, you know? Yeah. You know, it, honestly, it really yeah. is. It comes down to a rhythm um, that's very musical. And I think that maybe uh, comedy is my, my opportunity to be uh, a musician yeah. without playing an instrument. Yeah. You know? I totally understand that. Yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. Well, cool, man. Thanks for coming down. Now, shout out some social media so people can get a hold of you and let us know all the projects you're working on. You're, you're, you're going to be working on Orgasmo too, right? Yeah, I'm actually working on the sequel to that. I'm writing the script, and uh, it's funny because it's all uh, it's a legal battle at the moment. Of course, yeah. Um, I shouldn't say battle. It's more of just a legal issue Yes. because uh, we are trying to get the rights mm -hmm. and the trademarks to the characters established. And uh, it's going to be actually a Chota Boy story. Yes, as, um, as well it should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Trey, I talked to Trey about it, and uh, he has no interest in, in acting yeah. actually ever again, aside from voice work. He's, yeah. uh, he just got cast actually doing uh, Minions 3, 
he's like the main bad guy. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it'll be like his first opportunity to actually do something outside of something he created that way. Wow. Which is really cool. Yeah. Um, and Pablo, it, like the, the uh, Cinco Paul, who's the guy that created that universe, is a really cool guy. He's like yeah. one of us, like like-minded okay. individual, loves movies, loves comedy, yeah. can talk comic books like no one's business. Right. Um, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of selling him artwork, and he's just, he's awesome. Oh, that's cool. So that, that, they're going to have some, some fun on the set, I think. Nice. Yeah. Okay, well, he's not going to be Orgasmo, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but he gave me his blessing and uh, said basically it's out of his hands because uh, Orgasmo was sold at the Toronto Film Festival. Mm -hmm. So he... Um, he doesn't have anything attached to it anymore. Right. So now it's just kind of up to me and my lawyer to figure out who is attached to it and yeah. uh, get the permission and the rights and then uh, hopefully move forward. Cool. And you've got some other stuff in the can in, in the works too, right? Yeah, I just did another TV pilot out in Philly with some really funny guys. A new TV series that they're trying to sell called Greenpeace. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny because... Uh, P-E-A-C-E. Greenpeace. P-I-E-C-E. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's... Uh, it's definitely uh, marijuana involved. Gotcha. And uh, it's great comedy. It's really funny. It's really, really well done. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing right now is trying to build an online following with the audience and uh, and move from there. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been given the same advice. I'm trying to sell my own TV pilot. And uh, I was told by a few producers that it might behoove me to try to create an online following before I actually present it to people because... A lot of these studio guys want to know that there's already an established audience. They're looking at Instagram numbers. They're yeah, looking at exactly. Twitter numbers. Yeah. yeah, they want to know that there's already somebody there that they like or that likes it. And mm -hmm. it's honestly, Hollywood is sort of like uh, high school with money. Yeah. And I say that because it's sort of playing the idea of popularity games yeah. and little clicks and things that notice he stayed away from saying it's like clueless with money which would be the, <laughs> like kind of the perfect example of yeah, a high school movie it as, really is that, because yeah. yeah because a lot of these guys they don't want to take a chance even if it's something that they like they're not going to put their necks out on the line unless they know that there are people that will buy tickets yeah and so the way to offset that is to say okay well this guy just gave me an idea and i think it's funny and He's got 100,000 people that love it too, so yeah. that means 100,000 people are going to buy tickets to it. So that means it's cool, right? You know what's funny <laughs> is that the week before you pitch, you could buy 100,000 likes on Instagram or Twitter yeah. from like a, you know, an Indian um, you know, yeah. Twitter could bomb be company because that, they're not you know looking what? at that stuff. That's actually completely true. And it happens. Like yeah. I, I've oh. been told this by people who land oh, at no. projects. It's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. And even the studios do it. Yeah. I mean- Honestly, there are warehouses in India and other places where literally they have people liking things. Yep. They have people commenting on things. They have people raising the interest of certain projects. Yep. It's uh I know galleries that won't touch an artist unless the artist has a certain threshold of followers. Yeah. And you know as a as a gallerist to me I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm into talent development. That's yeah. a, that's the thing I like best about my job. That it also becomes kind of the hardest part in a way because you've got people that just don't have any clue how to do stuff. Yeah. So when I, I work with somebody new, I, I just have to explain everything and I have to do it every single time yeah. and be sure I didn't miss anything so that I don't have an expectation that I would have of a 10-year professional, of someone who just got out of art school. Yeah. But that said, the people that are fresh out of art school are much easier to work with than the people who have 10 <laughs> years under their belts, you know, in that case. But I've, like, I don't look at that stuff. I don't pay attention to it. But mm -hmm. I realize that now, you know, there's all these metrics. You know, you got you to gotta have 500 new people a day, you know, once you hit a certain number. And it's that's a full-time job. Like, I mean, I've, I've got, you know, my the five different things that I do that I have to constantly you know, reply and add, and you want to, you know, I want to interact with people, so I don't just want to be like, 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 The crazy like, like. thing is that it's so often false numbers, though. Yeah. It's like, it's false information. Yeah. It's... I yeah. want interaction, you know, like, I want, when, you know, everybody was, like, adding crazy Facebook, um, adding friends and stuff, I was cutting it down. I'm like, yeah. I don't want to deal with that many people. Yeah. And then, of course, they changed the metric of being able to reach people, and you're like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> I guess I should have added them to take advantage of the numbers now that I can't. Yeah, I think Facebook, actually, if, unless you pay Facebook... Um, 500 limit on, invitation, on invitations. I think it's even lower than that. I heard oh it's 200. Gosh. Only wow. No matter how many friends you've got, yeah. only... 200 people actually see that in their newsfeed unless oh, yeah. you pay Facebook more. Yeah. So, 
you might have thousands of friends, but unless you pay Facebook some money, yeah. those thousands don't know anything about what you just posted. Yeah. Hey, let me plug one more thing, though. Absolutely, yeah. I did a horror film called The Murders of Brandywine Theater, mm-hmm. and that's on video on demand and pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of it because it's something totally different. It's yeah. not a comedy. It's uh, sort of like an old Twilight Zone episode. Oh, cool. And I got to play a dramatic role. I play a schizophrenic uh, ventriloquist who's accused of murder in a small town. And uh, Les Claypool, who's the singer of Primus. Yeah, Primus, yeah. He does the voice of the dummy that wow. I'm operating in. It's a cool movie. It's like so, magic. Yeah, yeah I like mean they they Anthony didn't Hopkins, put, yeah. They didn't put any money into advertising unfortunately. They just the budget didn't allow for it, so mm-hmm. nobody knows about this movie. Yeah. But hopefully somebody will. Well, the the thing about what's great too is that even after films find their home, it's still possible for the filmmakers generally if they get permission from the people who bought it to take it to film festivals yeah. and build up a secondary following which leads you know back into those They numbers. all want money though too. It's very expensive. It's all about yeah, you, festivals are they're not cheap pay anymore. Money. Yeah. You got to pay money to to maybe make some money. Wow, it's a it's a funny game. Well, give me some more stuff. Give me some goods. Give me some good news. Let's end on a smile. Uh, <laughs> and everybody should go out and see this film, of course. Anyways, yeah, the mergers of Brandywine Theater, and uh, I've got the TV pilot for Greenpeace. Mm-hmm. They've got a website, so you can see all of their episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's I, the title of the the English project? Uh, it's called Wound Back. Wound Back. Wound Back. And uh, it's a really funny and cool premise. Um, it's a mix of sci-fi, comedy, and drama. I play a guy who's a computer nerd mm-hmm. who works for this computer app company in England. He's an American, and he's kind of a fish out of water and kind of trying to f- negotiate his uh, his foothold in that new territory. Mm-hmm. And he's got this coworker who's constantly screwing him over, and he realizes that this guy's actually got a little pocket watch that's a time machine. And if you wind the stopwatch back two minutes, um, you can go back in time in two-minute increments. Oh, that's cool. So it's a little bit like Groundhog Day, and yeah. you can keep revisiting moments until he gets it just right. Yeah. And I get in a fight with the guy, and I, I steal his watch. And then I find out how he's getting ahead in work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I start using it to get ahead in work and love. And uh, then I find out that there's this other agency this uh, top secret agency that he stole the watch from. So now they're after me to get the watch, get the back. watch back. And uh, yeah, it's a really cool script. And I'm really hoping that something goes forward with that. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Awesome. Well, everybody, thanks a bunch. I'll uh, give a, a, a warm a warm hello and goodbye at this point to, uh, to Dean Bahar. And um, follow his social media. He's I'm... I read all his posts on Facebook, and I'm a yeah, big fan. Yeah, you can fan. find me on yeah. Facebook. We, I'm and, kind of a Facebook psycho. Yeah, and it's it's great interactions. I love the stuff that you post. And this, it's it's like a, a good combination of um, of really funny, wacky, like totally our sense of humor, and then like genuine political angst. Yeah. And, and then just like, hey, guys, this is happening stuff. So it's like yeah. there's a lot of really great stuff My to manager follow. keeps telling me, he's like, you need to tone it back on the Facebook. He's like, you know, you're probably... <laughs> Making some people angry. And I'm like, yeah, but it's probably people that I don't want to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you can never decide that. Just yeah. be nice. I'm like, oh. It's like the Springsteen thing. It's so hard. <laughs> you know, Springsteen's, his core demographic yeah. are Trump voters. Yeah. And he's very vehemently anti-Trump. Yeah. And so he had to be really careful. Yeah, I wonder how that affect his, affects he, his sales. He said, you know, that um, he gets a lot of, he doesn't get too political at the shows anymore. because At this point, it's worthless, so why bother, right? You know, yeah. it's like... It, for him, it's the the election is over, and it's just kind of like okay, coast off, put that into the next album type of stuff. Right. But um, that he was saying, you know, right before the election, that if I need to, I'll get out there and say something. But of course, everybody thought that by the numbers, by the polls, that it wasn't necessary. Right. You know, the poll, the tea leaves going into this was that it was going to be a landslide for the Democrats, and it wouldn't have been important. Yeah. But um, you know, what I think is becoming evident is that. I mean, we know that when, when people do something wrong, they kind of know they did something wrong. And if you <laughs> rub their noses in it, they'll, uh, by, in, for spite, they will stick to doing the wrong thing rather than, yeah. than admit to being wrong. Yeah. And so I think that, um, that his strategy from this point forward is to welcome them all back in and be like, hey, look, you got lied to. This isn't your fault. You know, you had very valid reasons for, for choosing whoever you chose. He's letting them know that they're victims. Yes. Okay. And that it's not, they're not, they're not the problem. They, yeah. There's another problem. It's got one name and it's the president. Right. You know, that type of stuff. Yeah. And um, they actually tried to advertise on this podcast. 
yeah. in the election that Trump campaign took advertising on our Trump cast when when we were when we were just like you know bad mouthing them on every single show and yeah. I'm sure I have listeners that that think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and um and I don't you know I we have common ground elsewhere I guess is what we'll say yeah but um and I try not to hammer it too much but it's you know it's getting pretty evident that you can you can have a problem with somebody that you supported and you can change your mind I supported John Edwards going into the 2008 campaign until we realized that he was not perhaps a very good person. Yeah. And then I switched, you know, and and, yeah. and we can all do that. Yeah, but there's a lot of Trump supporters who are like, oh, my God, I fucking blew it. <laughs> yeah. But then there's a lot that are probably like, no, let's hang on. Let's see what's going on. Yeah. And well, then there's, there's others that are like, no, I like it. There's Most people are single issue. And so yeah. if he's catering to their single issue, all the other issues that they didn't care as much about, even if they had an opinion about, they're kind of like hanging in to see if, if they get that one issue taken care of. Yeah. And no matter who you are, often most voters are single issue voters. There's one yeah. thing that means more to you than anything else. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you're um, whether you're conservative or um, or liberal, I mean, your family's going to play into it. So if you've got. I'm married to an immigrant, you know, and um, I've got two sisters that are married to women, you know, and it's a, yeah. there's a couple of things on the table that are perhaps right. more important to me than other people. Yeah. But I understand the economic stuff. I understand, you know, the in certain areas, um, a little bit of the, the xenophobia that happens because there there are immigration problems in certain areas in America that we don't see in California. And it's that disconnect between federal regulation, state regulation, and local funding that causes these. Yeah. So... If they understand that these things aren't necessarily being orchestrated by the people coming in, but by the people that run the country, then I think there's, there'd be a little bit more of a welcome wagon and people could get along. But, I, you know, I, I get people aggrieved. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that people are very quick to put on blinders. Oh, yeah. You know. People love to double down on their decision, you know. Well, of course, yeah. But, uh yeah, it's scary shit. <laughs> <laughs> and with yeah. those words, <laughs> we shall run off into the sunset. Right. But again, check um, check out Dean's uh, resume online. You know, go to IMDb and check out the stuff that he's been working on. Uh, if you haven't seen, if you listen to this show and you haven't seen Orgasmo and, and Basketball, go see them both because they're they're to me classics in the genre, especially in the genre, of the, in comic genre of the last 30 years, that um, if you're looking for something a little bit different, you're going to love these. I'm kind of amazed that McFarlane Toys has an approach to put out Orgasmo dolls at this point because yeah. it's totally the type of thing he would do. But um, again, thanks for listening and uh, tune in again next Sunday to another episode of Pod Sequentialism with me, your host, Matt Kennedy. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.